0: Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. Remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you something, people. First of all, there's no song today because the song I used on YouTube disappeared. And I got to tell you something. I uh, was out earlier today and I went and I had to get a mouse trap because we have a mouse. And it's weird because Joanne didn't believe me. I told her there was a mouse and she's like, you imagined it. Then the other day, I swear I saw it again. She goes, you're dreaming it. Last night, she's about to cook dinner, and I hear a scream from the kitchen, and she yells, it's a mouse, so I went got the trap. Anyway, we have a great show today. We have a, 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 a legend. He's, he's an amazing uh, amazing bassist, amazing musician, and uh, he's just got done his his radio show. His name's Mike Watt. How you doing, Mike?
1: Thanks for having me aboard, Steve. No problem. So now tell me about your radio show. It's called The Watt for Pedro Show, T W F P S. Dot com is where it lives, and I've had it for 16 years and one month. Basically, I start off with John Coltrane's song, then I interview somebody about their journey through music, because I found no two journeys through music are the same.
0: Now, when did your journey through music start? When did you start playing music, and what, what, at what age did you feel you were interested in music? Were you a young kid?
1: I'm not really a musician. I got into music to be with my friend, E. Boone. I like being with him. And when we were 12, uh, right around when we met, his mother wanted me to be in a band with him. So that's how I kind of got into playing music.
0: And so what kind of music were you guys starting to play back then?
1: Well, this is, I'm 13 in 1970, so we're talking about arena rock. And uh, maybe 8-track tapes even. But it's not about writing your own songs. It's about copying stuff off records. And basically, uh, she wanted us, you know, where she could uh, feel we were safe after school. It was the prod, you know, it was early 70s, so not a lot of guns, but some fighting and stuff. So she wanted us, uh, yeah, some kind of econo childcare. care. So that, that's the idea of a band. We didn't, you had no idea you could play arenas or anything like this. There's, we weren't aware of club culture. That didn't come until the movement. So, uh, I want to be with my friend, and then this thing comes around when uh, we graduate high school. There's just some funny sky noises. Uh, where they they let anybody... Uh, uh, if you got enough nerve, this, this movement was so small and pretty open-minded, if you had enough nerve, you could go out there and do that. And that's one of the reasons... I don't play any merch stuff on my radio shows. It's because I, I feel I owe a debt to that movement for giving me and D. chance, a chance, you know, along with George Hurley and other people, uh, to, to, to make music part of a, yeah, what do you call it, uh, expression, and not just something personal. I mean, it was very important to us personally, but to get to uh, bring it to people as a form of expression, I thought that was righteous, too. That's probably why you're talking to me uh, today, Steve. Well, what was what was that scene like when
0: you were back? I mean, what was it? What was you know? It's 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 early. You guys are young.
1: You know what was what was the energy? When you talk, not the uh, arena rock days. You mean when the movement? The movement. Okay, see our first yeah. We see our first gig It's the bags up at the Whiskey and Go Go in West Hollywood, and the first thing out of my mouth without thinking, I just told Dee Boone, we can do this. <laughs> you know, it was much different than being at an arena rock show, you know? Nothing against any kind of uh, musicianship or whatever technical thing, or in this case, lack of. It was very empowering. It was like, I don't know, come on, uh, get on board if you got something with the gigs before. Before that, it was more like a movie or a TV show you were watching that you weren't really part of it was different with the movement so the energy was uh channeled in different places all of a sudden you saw music is not just a way to be with your friend but actually to uh, express things with your friend and it might not seem like a big difference but in, in to us it was like night and day and it uh i don't know it they just turned into Minute
0: <laughs> you hey, how did you uh, find out you know where did you pull from to express yourself
1: well obviously these cats that were already doing it were serving as a good example because they were letting the freak flag f- fly they were not afraid of uh, even learning in front of you and, and uh, also uh, it was it, I have to say it was pretty uh, you understand me and D Boone are boys in the 60's you know what people People are in the streets with uh, speech and anti-war and uh, civil rights. And by the time the 70s come, that kind of ran out of gas, and it was just like some kind of, I don't know, ghost or or phantom or something. And uh, at least having fun with the notion of it having some kind of importance. uh, This is what I think attracted us to this movement. It was very small, maybe 200 people come meet up in Hollywood (laughs) from all these different parts. You know, SoCal is very spread out. Maybe it's 150 towns. So here in the harbor, San Pedro, uh, we didn't know Valley people or Orange County or Inland Empire or the West Side or any of that stuff except through this movement. And the trippy thing about it, it seemed the lingua franca was stooges, which I ended up getting to do 125 months with later down the road. Ain't that
0: a trip? It's crazy. Now, now when you're playing, when you formed the Minutemen, how did you come up with the name? And when did you guys start writing songs?
1: Yeah, well, I wanted to make a band right away from that bags gig. Uh, but D Boone didn't want to. So I went and tried out for some band, uh, ad. After I told him about it, he said, okay, I'll make a band. So we made this thing called the reactionaries. And, uh, he wouldn't write any songs for that band that's the first band i wrote songs for and it was pretty terrible but he did it to be you know to be my friend and the real band he wanted was yeah what ended up being called the Minutemen. now he asked me like he did with that reactionary band make a big list of names and he would pick from it now uh, my my real rock experience i thought of us as, as tiny you know little insignificant so i I was thinking two words, minute men, tiny men, and D. Boone, he liked the name, but he said we should put the words together because there's some assholes that are appropriate in patriotic imagery and we should, like, confuse all that by uh, using, I guess these P guys were writing letters to Angela Davis or something threatening her. So he thought thought we should confuse things by calling ourselves the same thing they were calling themselves, which happened later in the 1990s to us because... uh, yeah, I had people ask me if I was part of some bunch of idiots that were, um, I don't know. I mean, they ended up dissolving because of embezzlements and like uh, fight fighting. But it's funny how D. Boone, D. Boone could like, uh, he had a talent for cutting to the chase, getting right at it. Sometimes I got uh, more spaced out in the tangents. Anyway, that's where the name came from. It started out with a Watt idea of us being the antithesis of an arena rock band.
0: So uh, so you start off, and then where do you sit there and figure...
1: Use it for that. Dee Boone uses it for uh, other things. And then also he goes about organizing the band. Uh, he thought it was too hierarchical with the guitar players running too much of the show. So he liked what they did with r b music where the guitar played more treble and the bass and the drums could come up. That's actually where... He considers us a political band. He, the words uh, were more like thinking out loud. The, po- the politics, he really thought, was in, you know, a lot of this stuff, Steve, is in this uh, documentary God, uh, he just passed away. Keith Sherritt and Tim Ir- Irwin. Uh, it's called We Jammy Kano You can go to YouTube.com. They talk a lot about this stuff. But uh, that's where God is going obviously the gigs we're seeing up in Hollywood at the Whiskey and Mask, that stuff. And then we're getting records from a little store in Long Beach called Zeta London. So they're getting records to us from England and overseas. Uh, The Fall and the pop group and Wire and Deutsche Amerikanische Freundschaft, Der Plan. You know, all, all this crazy, wild stuff of bands we didn't see, only knew it by their music, Throb and Gristle. Lemon Kittens, Desperate Bicycles, stuff like this. And then bands were seeing live, like The Germs, and X, and the Alley Cats, and Dills, and Bags. And, uh, I can't imagine the Minutemen being who they were without those influences. So, in a way, I know we kind of have our own sound, but we, we thought that was the idea. <laughs> you were going to be part of this movement you were supposed to come up with your own sound well yeah I mean it would make sense now what what was the the energy one of their slogans was anarchy you know and reading uh, Raymond Pettibone I mean you met a lot of interesting people at these gigs and he he got me into reading this lady Emma Goldman and you know this idea of no coercion you're supposed to like yeah Uh, so he also taught me about these uh, other movements uh, uh an art called dada and the people we had here like uh, uh jackson pollock and you're, you're supposed to be, uh and actually i found out later about walt Whitman putting out his own you know 12 poems to try to stop the civil war i just f- felt and so did d. Boom, especially with uh d boone did with uh, what's his name from Oklahoma you know, the guy, uh, Bobby Dillon. Who? Woody the guy Bobby Dillon borrowed a lot from Woody Guthrie, D. Boone, f- felt Boone, and I did too. I felt we were part of other traditions. We were just punk. Like somebody in San Francisco once said, the only thing new is you finding out about it. That's that's kind of what we, we figured out, that this thing, there had been a long tradition of this, and it was just our turn to find out and then do something about it. And what we did was make a band.
0: Now, when you guys started playing, yeah. what, what was the energy like? What, how did people react to your band? What was it like back then?
1: Well, right away, uh, you know, uh, we became friends with the Black Flag guys, and they were big supporters. They liked our, what we were playing. And in fact, we ended up being SST 002, and, uh, uh, which was very kind of them, you know, and uh of course, they played a different style, and they had bands on their label, but like Whisker Du and uh, Meat Puppets, and became uh, very good friends of ours. Uh, so we felt like we are part of a movement. And So some of the energy was that way. Some of the energy was like, uh, yeah, what, what are your peers doing? Uh, what, you Because know, in those days, you made records to uh, make sure people knew you were alive, so you did them every six months or something. It, w- it was different than the old paradigm, which was... Uh, you, you know, you tour to support recordings. In those days, you recorded to support gigs. Like me and Dee Boomer we uh, decided the world was only two categories. There was flyers and gigs, and everything that wasn't a gig was a flyer to get people gigs. So it was all this stuff about reevaluating things. And you know when you're in charge of your own uh, future, or you think you are like that, you have a lot of autonomy, or, or you've made sure, you know, Join a situation like that, uh, you're very excited to do things because it, it's, it's no longer about blaming other people. It's 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 the the bigger question is what is to be done, and so you bring everything to it. You find out punk isn't just making a band or a funny a name for yourself or your group uh, or even about uh, comp- uh, compositions. It's about uh, putting on shows. It's about making a label. It's about uh, maybe f- fanzines and putting your uh, thoughts out there, unfiltered, it was a whole, a whole bunch of things, you know, and it wasn't really a style of music, but that for sure we were convinced of. And that's where there was a big problem when I look back. It, it's always been considered a style of music, or genre or something like this, which is ridiculous. It's, uh, you know, trying to say like beat or Dada uh, or, or surreal or anything is, is, is some kind of style. It, it's more of a, 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 a group of people in a certain situation. And, uh, and in fact, that's why I think we still talk about this word about something from the 70s. Pop- it, yeah, why do you think it was lumped into a, a genre? A word. I mean, Pedro met a guy who got fucked in jail for cigarettes. I mean, why would you call your music this? And what, and what, what we gathered from the gigs was it was kind of a parallel universe. They didn't fit in so well with the square shit, so they just, you know, uh, did things on their own ter- terms without so much coercion, you know. Of course, like all things human, it gets co-opted by other stuff. And you got plenty of examples, you know, um, before that even, like Little Richard, so way less tutti-frutti than uh, Pat Boone. I mean, you know, it was probably not even Pat Boone's idea. it's probably some management decision. He was probably pretty embarrassed. But, I mean, th- these things kind of happen. It, I think the reason why we are still using that word, punk, though, is because in some ways it didn't get all saddled down with the idea that it was a style or even a, a way of cutting your hair or wearing your clothes a certain way. You know, uh, actually, at deep down, it's maybe kind of part of an antithesis of that or okay. antidote. And so that's why I think it's still viable, and I'm not embarrassed or ashamed to use it.
0: Well, also, your, your music had elements of jazz and folk and stuff. Yours, yours was a different sounding music than what people considered punk, right? Yeah,
1: but that, we thought that was idea. I mean, you listen to those bands I was talking about. They're pretty, pretty wild-ass. I mean, and, and understand, too, that, you know, uh, this is a working Harbor here. A lot of longshoremen. My pop was a sailor. I came from Virginia when I was nine. And I didn't really know people who knew about jazz. When, when, when Raymond Pettibone played me Ascension, I thought I thought it was an older guy, but I still thought he was a punk guy. I didn't know he was already dead. I didn't know about this scene, and so right away we started incorporating those sounds. I, I got to tell you, we felt a little embarrassed learning because before we st- started playing with the movement, we had you know copied uh, songs off Blue Oyster Cult and Creedence albums, you know, so we felt a little tainted. You know, (laughs) you know somebody like the Urinals was, uh, you know, pure. You know, as soon as they made a band, they started playing and and making their own music. They didn't copy other people. So for some reason, I mean, now looking back, you are what you are. You know, Popeye figured that out. No, but I mean, Steve, you can't change circumstance, right? You know, you come in, you can't unring the bell. You know. Like they say in the courtroom, right? You can't. If, if you've heard these things, you heard them. If you learned them, you learned them. Now, what do you do now? Now they can tell you you can do this in front of people, and you can tell, uh, let them know what's on your off your chest. You know what has been giving you a, a hard time, or whatever. Something you want to celebrate? Uh, that you, you can't imagine the energy. Uh, the I don't know. The feeling of like finally, man. Like they 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 took off the dog collar bleach
0: now when you guys were playing you were starting to get a, a good following right
1: well at first the movement was very small it's I think it, it, it changed with R.E.M R.E.M uh, kind of brought the, the movement to the college radio and when that happened that helped a lot but there wasn't a lot of college people in the, uh, actually there wasn't a lot of young people at first 70s punk had a lot of glitter and glam people you know, people had been in college, maybe, uh, but hardcore was kids, okay, high school, junior high, and then when early eighties came, and and then REM, uh, we have to give them a lot of credit for, uh, and and then you start hearing Husker Do and Meat Puppets, and Black Flag on uh, the college radio, and, and in fact, I worked at SST. I would call up a. Uh, college stations for the CMJ, and you would not believe how many of them were playing Journey and shit like this, you know, because they are bucking to be getting jobs as interns with these big labels after. Our, our, our word for them was corporate ponds. We didn't mean to be contemptuous about that kind of pejorative, but they were stuck in a paradigm, you know, that hadn't come where all of a sudden college radio, yeah, you got your friends on, and each of those guys had their own shows, and they had their own playlists. There's no master plan, you know what I mean? It was—you kind of, could see it happening in the early to mid '80s. This, these takeovers of the college radio programs by uh, people with autonomous kind of minds, which is—I I see a direct result of the movement from the '70s. Uh, and it took a little bit, okay? So. Uh, there's a, there's, a, there's a price to be paid if you're really a true believer. <laughs> you know, if you're really going to walk the walk, uh, it's going to upset some people who want to keep things, uh, you know. I don't know if you remember the Vietnam War, but there was so much anger at the Viet Cong for wearing black pajamas, you know, not wearing real uniforms. Some people don't like this. They, they need people in uniforms. And, and if you get out of line that way, well, they spit on you. They throw... The worst was batteries. <laughs> batteries. <laughs> I mean, I got hit with used condoms, you know, cups of piss, bags of shit, a, a puke, vomit, you know, uh, and a paper sack, so they break. But there's nothing like batteries. <laughs> I'll take anything but fucking batteries. Oh, yeah, battery, um, man. That's that's, that's so, painful. Yeah, yeah. Full beers, too, they hurt. Uh, so, so there was uh, some negative opinions expressed at, at playing. Uh, sometimes and some of this went up until even the 90s uh, opening for uh here i got a guy with me uh, nels klein incredible guitarist right the crew of the flying saucer this is the early 90s or middle 90s and opening for uh less uh primus you know a band that's pretty out there if you ask me but uh audience but didn't want it didn't want what i was bringing. So I've had to face a lot of negative uh, kind of things, but uh, i n I'd never blame the audience that much. It, it, they get caught up in kinds of things. And, uh, you know, first had to deal with that. I felt like actually, the last-minute mentor was with REM. And boy, uh, you wouldn't believe the abuse we got there. But then, you know, years later, I had people come up to me, you know, the first time I saw you, <laughs> I was out there booing you with the other... Square Johns and khakis, <laughs> backwards baseball hats. So why did they put you? Why did they put you on the tour with REM? Yeah, well they picked us. We didn't know who they were. We had to uh, buy a record to see what they sounded like. They were actually very, very cool people. That uh, was uh, you know, the very last song I got to play with D. Boom was a Television song called "See No Evil," and it was with those guys: Pete Buck, where me, and D. Boom played. One of his guitars. It was in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, those guys knew about a lot of musics. They were incredible, deep. I remember recording a lot of uh, last poets at Pete Buck's dad. Good, good cats. Now... It was hard to know about things in those days, right? There's no internet. You, you know about things through fanzines. In fact, the year before we did that tour Aria uh, Mike Stat came to an Atlanta gig we did at the 688 Club, and he interviewed us. And he didn't tell us he was in a band or anything. Uh, he had cut his hair, but we could tell that that was that guy. <laughs> so, you know, you know, it was, it, it was, it was uh, more small and more detached. But it was still a, it was still interesting community.
0: Now, how do you think the community would have been different if there was internet back then, do you think the music would have become bigger or it would have been filtered down?
1: Well, I don't know about that. There was always going to be some filtering because there's always people in for uh, the con, right? In for the make. They're just going to cash in. There was, I'm, I'm not going to name anybody, but there was several jive ass people. And maybe the internet might've made that easier. And maybe, but on the same time, maybe it would have made it easier to circumvent all the square kinds of things people were connecting to. You know, one good thing was that underground at the club, no one could get in between you and a giggoer. And maybe the internet affords you that kind of uh, privacy. Maybe. I don't
0: know. It's weird because, you know, even promoting shows, it would have been different, you know, because back then it was all flyers, as you said. It was
1: flyers and music. I know, but but the the ethic is the same. In fact, I see fanzine ethic very close to website ethic. I thought all of us would have our own websites by now, and they would be run like fanzines. Instead, we went to Think Look and Shitter. We all went to a couple places. I I really thought it was going to be more like fanzines, and I, I still think those ethics are out there. Uh, people, what what happens is, I, mean, I look at the uh, fanzine ethic size as more positive, and maybe the CB radio side more negative. <laughs> Remember CB radios? Oh, yeah. <laughs> people would talk like assholes, right, because they're not using the real names. There's a lot of that culture on the internet. <laughs> but there are, also could be a lot of that fucking righteous uh, fanzine ethic. For example, your, your uh, radio show right here nobody gets in your way. To me that's exactly what a fantasy is like right You print it, you distribute it. the internet allows that if you if you want to make it happen.
0: That's true. I mean I, I, you're right because we sit there you sit there and you go okay, here's what I'm gonna do. I can do it. I have the technology. it doesn't cost a lot and we can get it out to the masses.
1: You get a domain name don't name main domain name, domain name <laughs> and then you rent some server space you're there. Now, there. now how people, do... Humans, humans, there is another side that don't want to, you know, be Walt with <laughs> They want to be part of the herd. And maybe it's the same people, but they just take turns. You know, it's a dynamic thing. I don't think it's so static, Steve. I think we're a, a confused kind of a species of animal. <laughs> well, now... Okay, and that, that's why we need the arts. that's why we need and, and dialogue like this like you and me talking.
0: Well, I' gotta ask you now after your friend passed,
1: how did you how did you
0: find to get back and play again? Because it seems like it was it was more it started out of friendship and it became this art and then people started enjoying you. How does someone and you're at a young age and it's one of your best friends, how do you get back on the horse?
1: I stopped. I thought nobody wanted to hear me without him, so I stopped. And uh, it was Thurston who got me uh, uh, going again. Uh, there was there, there, uh, Sonic Youth was doing an album called uh, what's It Called? Evil, and they had me play bass on Kim's bass. And then after that, that was the first time I played since he got killed. And I thought, well, maybe uh, we should do a, a seven-inch and, and celebrate Madonna's. He said, okay, and that was Chicota Youth. So it, it was another musician who got me back in. Thurston Moore, I have to give a lot of the credit. And then uh, uh, from Ohio, right? This young kid. I didn't know, Steve, that you had to uh, pay money to not have your number in the phone book. Okay. So he calls me up from Ohio, and I'm coming over. This guy's a trumpet student, you know, he didn't even have an amplifier just bought a guitar, and I'm coming out there." I said, what? And he did, it. and I thought that was so balls out, so started Firehose with him. We did seven and a half years, and 20 tours, seven records. Uh, Edward helped me a lot, and of course, the drummer, who was in both bands, Minuteman and Firehose, George Hurley. And those guys helped me out a lot, of, just by putting me back on the horse, you know? Uh, I didn't think about it a lot, I just did it. And, uh, I look back and those were very difficult years for me but it's better than staying home drinking right got out there playing and yeah i didn't have my guy anymore but you know you can't change things right you gotta you get dealt a hand and i didn't know that then and then i end up my first opera because it ends up being about this 1997, I put out "Contemplating the Injury Room, which is going to come out in vinyl in this fall. I never had vinyl because things were going to CD. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I, I dealt with this. It, yeah, having a reason to play is very important, Steve. Unless you're just punching the clock or won the lottery or some shit. Yeah, It is important to have a reason to play. And I lost my guy, you know, but uh, maybe... The fabric of the movement. And from Ohio, for sure. George Hurley. Uh, Also, things changed because of R.E.M. You did have more people coming. The late 80s is different than the early 80s. You have a lot more young people coming to the shows. And then what happens is some, uh, you know, well, the... The big guys tried something in the earlier days with, uh, they call it New Wave, right? So now they're coming around again, and they're going to call it Alternative. But this time it's going to, it's going to fly because there's, a, yeah, Kurt Cobain, you know, who definitely would not want to be, you know, have that trip laid on him, but it was. And uh, it just changed things. So a lot more people saw me playing Firehose than they ever did in the Minute, minute. Now, what happened to Firehose? Well, we did seven and a half years, took 20 tours, and it, it kind of ran out of gas a little bit. I just saw Edward, and he's taking care of his mother now in Pittsburgh. I see Georgie lives in Pedro now. But it, it kind of ran out of gas. and uh, I was getting to this place where Yeah, I was bringing songs. I remember bringing (laughs) Piss Bottle Man to Edward. He goes, Michael, are you sure this is the song for this kind of band? And so what he was talking about was kind of made sense. You know, maybe I should have different projects for different musics. And so that's when I start with that Ball Hogger Tugboat. That's what, 22 years ago now. But This idea, like, if the bass player knew the song, maybe anybody could come and play with you. Because the only way I knew how to do music before is you just play with your guy, you know? And so, that's what, Firewalls is kind of a place to get me back into music and then move me to this other place where I start doing different projects with different people. Now... I even ended up being a side man, too, like Porno for Pyros, Jay Maskus and the Fog, and the Stooges. Now... I've never done before,
0: you know? Well, ball hog and uh, Tug, ball and you had an amazing list of uh, artists on that. How did the people find? Did they all seek you out to play? Like, did Eddie Vedder and Rollins and Evan Dando? Did they all seek you out to play, or how did that? How did that no, come about? No, 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 no,
1: no. Like I said, I had this idea that I was going to test in the real world if the bass player knows the songs, then maybe anybody can play drums, guitar, and sing. It was kind of a, the, where the title comes from. Is the bass going to be the ball hog, or is he going to be the tugboat, you know? So I came up with this metaphor of the wrestling ring. And uh, I practiced with Nels Klein and Michael Preisner for a couple songs, just to give it a little backbone. But all the rest, I never played with them guys. I just called them up. I did it in three towns. I did a couple days in L.A., a couple days in Seattle, a couple days in New York City, and I called my friends. Hey, why don't you come down, get in the ring with me. I'll show you the tune. That's it. Uh, bracket a couple times and record it. So I never went through any management or stuff like that. And, uh, the only person who kind of s- sought me out was Kathleen Hanna, and which was good because there wasn't a lot of ladies. And she used Thurston's answer machine as, as the recording studio. And she's the only one who kind of asked me. All the rest I picked, and I kind of had plans. You know, it's funny. It's called a solo album, but there's 48 different people. <laughs> <laughs> You know, what I am, and what bass is, the politics of bass is trippy because of our physics, you know. We look good making the other cats look good. Even if it's your own band, unless you're going to be some fake lead guitar thing, you're going to be backing up your own dudes. So, uh, I'll put it this way. Most people, that go into the head, either sitting there doing their thing, they're looking at the tile. Me, I'm more the grout, you know. I'm, I'm between the tiles. <laughs> And, and that's what I was trying to do with that album. You know, What what is the bass? You know, before, whenever people ask me what kind of bass player are you, I still say this I'm D Boom's bass player. I never had to worry about it, you know. And in a way, seven and a half years of Fire I was kind of on autopilot. I was doing what I did in the days with D Boom, but with Edward, of course, Georgie. Uh, this time, it's going to be you no. Know, we need a sea change. Why? And uh, so I tried it. And, uh, you know, there was a tour after that, right? Yeah. Dave Grohl and Ed Vedder came up to me and asked if they could be my band and have their bands open up. It was the most trippy thing. Uh, but And I never stood in the middle like that before. That, that The whole thing was a trip. Uh, a record came out last year about one of the gigs. It was the Chicago gig. And uh yeah, I'm glad I did it. Now, you know, at the time I was shitting bricks and TRP logs I and mean, it was but sometimes you gotta walk through that stuff, you know. I learned it doing kayak. If you freak out it don't make it easier. calm yeah keep it just write it out. Also I have respect, you know some stitches are fucking intense. So you know pick Your your career is
0: going good, and, and then you get sick. What was that like? You you got very sick, right?
1: Was it? But I got the second opera out of it. <laughs> yeah, you know, it just killed me, Steve. So I mean, yeah.
0: how do you how do you? You are a guy who loves his music. I mean, and then you couldn't play for a while. I mean, I know you were bedridden. What happened? And how did it all come about? And, and why? With that bed, at least the
1: bedridden, you know, after the. Yeah, it's all in the second opera. I used Dante's Divine Comedy. It, it, it was really scary. I was only 42 years old. I had a lot of work to do. I didn't want to die. But it hurt so much. 38 days of fever. I mean, I almost gave up, but I made it somehow. Well, the, uh, the intern, the doctor, Doc Hopkins, I put him in there, my sister, Melinda. It, it, it's horrible, you know? Uh, you never know. You you take good health for granted till it's on you, man, and then it's like a hell ride. It's a fucking hell ride. But I'm um, going to tell the tale. I mean, it was terrible. How and a lot after that? It was thirty-two thousand dollars to save my life, but uh, it was worth it. I was I considered.
0: Yeah. Now, now you had you you lost. You had to start learning to play again, right? You couldn't really play for a while.
1: Well, okay, yeah, that part of it, okay, yeah, there's that part too. Uh, when they put tubes in me and stuff, of course, I couldn't play bass anymore until they pulled, the tubes are right in my bladder and shit, so my cock, what do you call that, urethia, yeah. So they pull that shit out, and I can play again, but I can't play because it's been, you know, seven, eight months, and I've gotten all, uh, what do you call it, atrophied. And so i got to learn how to play again. I couldn't, I freaked out. I started doing stooges. Little doll over and over, (laughs) you know, because Stooges ain't a lot about chord changes, but it is a lot about feel. And damn, if this didn't come into my life more and more, you know, right away I want to do some gigs of just Stooges songs when I get strong enough. So I do one with the Porno for Pyro guys, Peter and Perkins, and then one with uh, a couple of them on the East Coast with Jay Mascis and Murph from Dinosaur. And this... Led to some crazy stuff that ended up being, yeah, the reunion of the Stooges, where Ronnie and Ig didn't even talk to each other for 29 years. So it shows you how crazy, uh, hellish stuff can lead to good things. It's life is strange. Luck is good and bad. You know, it's. I just know you, you can't take it for granted. That's what I've been taught. You can't control it, but you sure can try your hardest. Where you see yourself, where you, where you find yourself. Now, over the years,
0: how has your music, musical style and writing style changed?
1: Well, I got into writing these operas. I ended up doing three of them. And I come from this tradition uh, with minute with very tiny songs. So I don't know how I evolved into like 45, 50 minute songs. <laughs> I think what it is, it's just, I just take on. You know, everything becomes a device for what I want to talk about. And what I want to talk about is actually what I'm trying to learn about. What I found about, and I talk about a lot in my third opera, the whole thing about midlife, uh, you know, I'll be uh, 60 in December. And all this living has taught me that life is for learning. And so it's like a big classroom in a way. You never do get it figured out. You never do find a certain way to write you know it's all it's always evolving just like your body falling apart but maybe your writing is getting a little more together <laughs> Go the other way <laughs> it's funny you know about that as your body gets less uh, resilient you add on more experience to help make your thinking part a little more resilient it's funny you know as you get taken away physically you're getting added hopefully on that intellect, on the mind level, the culture level.
0: Now, what is your process when you write these operas? I mean, do you have a story set out, or how do you do this?
1: Well, I don't know if I have another opera in me. I think I'm going back to, to collections of tunes. But what I need, what I need from Minutemen days to these days, I always got to start with a title. I got to have a title, because then I can bring all the words, all the music to Aidan abet. To realize that focus you know okay once I do that then I usually come up with the music now I got a title I got music now bring in the spiel now the idea is being a bass player I don't want this thing all the way resolved I want the guys I'm collaborating with to have places to be themselves so part of the tunes part of being a bass player who's a comp- uh, composer, is you set up little launch pads, you set up little springboards. And people like Nels Klein, they love this. Other people, they're used to hearing demos where all the parts are written for them, it's on a keyboard or a guitar, and all the chords, all the harmony. Uh, I'd rather have less of that. So, because I come from a tradition of a very strong-willed people, uh, musically, like D. Boone, like Nels Klein, like Ig. Perry, Perry Farrell, uh, Jay Mascus, and I, I really like setting them up, you know, uh, uh, sort of like being a director with a, with an actor, but not all the way a director, because you're in there, too. <laughs> you know, you're, you're running the rudder, or you're the keel. Maybe you ain't the bow, maybe you ain't the top sail, but you're critical. And that's the way I look at my composition and the thing. I don't try to have it fully realized as a whole musical, you know, finished dealio. Of course, I get my statements. I got to get what I want to say out there. But a lot of this stuff I'm doing is ensemble, and when I, my uh, philosophy is, if you're going to do ensemble, make an interesting conversation. Get the instruments talking with each other. And the only way to do that is to make room uh, for them. Now, and have some stuff unrealized. At the same time, that thing's very, you know, so, sort of like when uh, Italian guys talk to you, right? They, they're, they're putting their fingers close together. This is exactly what I want to say. It's this weird kind of mix of that.
0: Now, after your first one, why'd you decide to do two more? Is it just something you love the process?
1: Well the first one I had to do to deal with losing people like Debo, my pop, you know, second one, you know, I was going to make it about my cat. <laughs> so I wanted a happy ending that the guy died of brain cancer and it was like, ah oh, fuck. And then that sickness got on me. It almost kills me. So I at least they had a happy ending. But I couldn't fucking keep reliving that thing. So I make a third one. And it's because of that documentary, We Jamie Cono. I wouldn't listen to Minutemen music. And then when those two guys, they were too young to see us, and actually the documentary is them learning about us. So I had to l- listen to that music all again, and there was stuff about it I liked. And so that's why I did the third one. Also, I wanted to talk about something the Minutemen would never would have talked about in their time. Being a middle-aged punk. Because... <laughs> You know, we never thought, we didn't even think about middle age. You know, there was old, didn't want to be that. But you never thought, but here I am. So why not deal with it? So in a way, it was a challenge to myself. And where I wouldn't uh, have something about going back, be some kind of bullshit, happy days, Fonzie and Potsy bullshit. You got to watch out about going back to your old things, you know. Unless they have some kind of relevance in where you're going in the moment man, you're just on some kind of, what do you call that? Sentimental journey, you know? Some kind of... uh, I remember when that series came out, my pop told me, boy, those were not happy days. (laughs) (laughs) That's always rung in my head, you know? So that's why I did the third one. Uh, Actually, I'm doing the fourth one, but I didn't write the libretto. Charlie Plymel did. It's called The Planet Chernobyl. And I'm doing it with and I'm not doing it by myself, I'm doing it with uh, Petra Hayden, who's out on tour with Bill Frizzell right now. Uh, but uh, as far as what operas, I think I'm, I'm, I'm finished with those. My, my next Missing Man and Second Man records are collecting oregon based uh, drum trio, The Longshoremen. And it's called uh, Pick It Up, Put It Over There. It's about uh, work, work songs with Pedro guys. But the the Missing Man kind of strange because I hardly ever write on guitar, but I did the third opera on D. Boone's Telecaster and then the, the next record. And that's actually got a guy from the old days, Tom Watson, who was in Slavily. He knew the Minutemen put out their first couple records. And so in that way I get to kind of be back, but not really, because I can't really play guitar well, but Tom Watson knows those days, and I can write for that situation with the second man with the organ I never have to worry because the organ is just different but I'm always worried about uh, copying or being a dip leech, you know I think I remember what Joey Ramon told me you know it's like a big hey hay wagon if you got something good to contribute then jump on you know and so that's what I'm always trying to think of and so that's where I I, I kind of am now 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 something like a big Walnuts Yonder album just came out last month. Nels Klein, uh, Greg Chanier from Deerhoof, and uh, Nick Reinhardt from Terra Malos. I wrote eight of the ten songs. Again, the songs were just bass parts, right? Just bass. Uh, not just one line. They had verse, chorus, bridges, this kinds of stuff. But I didn't bring in the other instruments. It was all because one guitar player, the younger one, wanted to know the older one. I said, You want to know him? play with him so set up the situation I mean I think some of this tradition goes back to uh what I learned about Raymond you know Raymond Pettibone started taking me to see these old beboppers like uh you know I don't know Mr. Ray Brown uh, Max Roach Cecil McBee uh Elvin Jones you know many times Elvin uh this, this idea, of, the idea of playing with people is important. It's not just the name game. And it's not just maybe having a hit. Just there's something humic about the fabric of interacting with somebody artistically and, and sincerely. Now, I
0: gotta ask you, I, since the operas are fascinating me, when, when you did the operas, would you play them through live or what would you do?
1: Oh, yeah, they're one song.
0: So you would do a gig, you would do a gig, and you would just play the one song, the whole uh, opera?
1: Yeah, start out, the, the first one had 15 parts, the second one had 9 parts, the third one had 30 parts. Okay, and each part had so many parts. It was a lot of shit to remember. <laughs> so obviously the first few tours were kind of rough. <laughs> but yeah, and then, and then with the third one, I remember one gig in Albany, New York State, uh, Tom Watson kept breaking a string, and I thought these people deserved to hear the whole piece. And one of them, we were like, I think on part 12, and nope, started over again. Four times we had to do this one. But I thought the people deserved to hear the whole thing. So start from start to beginning, yeah, one, two. I got the idea, there was this uh, album from The Who called A Quick One, or Happy Jack, and there's a tune on there called A Quick One Ways Away. And that had a huge influence on me and D. Boone. Without us really knowing it, we just really liked it. We did, you know, stuff like Tommy or Quadrophenia. They were the kind of opera we liked. We, we liked this, you know, a quick one. I don't know why, because it sounded like one song. And uh, that's the way I looked at these things and the way I played them live.
0: Now, you just got done a tour. What was, what's it like touring now? How's it changed over the years for you, back from the early days to now?
1: I can't do as many gigs as I used to. You know what? Let's see, 2014, I did 53 gigs in 53 days. And that's, yeah, I have to do a little less now. I still like playing every day, but I can't uh, stay out maybe seven, eight weeks, maybe uh, four, uh, five, six weeks. Uh, Another thing is uh, Yeah, this last tour I did I played songs from 35, 36, 37 years ago Which is a trip because Even though it's, you know Yeah, we didn't have internet and stuff like that A lot of things are very similar These songs don't sound so out of fashion (laughs) (laughs) You know shit like Working Men Are Pissed Right (laughs) Play disco, Paranoid Time, I'm eating Paranoid Chant. I mean, uh, Joe McCarthy's Ghost. A lot of this stuff does not seem old-fashioned. <laughs> and I didn't do it on purpose. I, it was because I was playing with my old friends, and Meat Puppets. So I thought, you know, and last year I, I was doing some gigs opening for X. And they were playing their old stuff. And it is trippy how some of this stuff isn't so, yeah, whether you've got topical and, and corny, you know, tied to a certain time frame. Who, who would have known? I don't know, Steve. Right. Who? Now, now you've stayed in
0: San Pedro this whole time. Did you ever want to leave, or is this, is it just your home?
1: Yeah, Pedro, we say. Uh, and, well, that's what they called it when I got here. I got here when I was nine, right, from Virginia. But this was closer to Vietnam. My papa's a sailor. And I liked it. I've been here 50 years. <laughs> Now you know I, I I tour so I leave a lot right. I already did three tours this year. I got another tour coming up September October. I'm gonna record an album with Taff Falco in Memphis uh, next month. So I leave a lot, but then the bungee cord pulls me back. You know. <laughs> so sometimes I think maybe it's good to leave your town to appreciate it. I I don't know. I just I belong to the San Pedro Bay Historical Society. I love this town so much. I don't know about the rest of SoCal, but I love Pedro.
0: Now, the album you're going to Memphis, what kind of album is that going to be?
1: That's, pa- that's Taf Falco, Panther Birds. Taf Falco big a hero to me, he had an album in the late 70s called Behind the Magnolia Curtain. I would have never guessed that, I don't know, 30-something years down the road, I would get a call out of nowhere, hey, Mike, you want to help? Ain't that a trip about music? And the guy on drums is Larry Mullins. Guy got to do last two years of Stooges with a beautiful man. He's uh, right now playing keyboard for uh, Nick Cave in Bad Seeds. It's trippy how all the arts that connects, you know. Especially, I think if you keep your your mind open and, and sincerely believe that we're here to learn, you know, one of the dangers of not getting killed is think you know yet you think you know everything. Which is a very dangerous place to be in. Whenever you get to the point where everybody ain't got something to show you, well, time to take some uh, humble pills. Right. That's Um, my thing. And so, this chance here to get to, I'm going to bring a Hofner China Beatle bass to Memphis and get to record an album with a, a guy I only knew through music and I loved it. And, I got to tour with him a year and a half ago, and now I get to make an album with him, and it's beautiful. He's a sincere guy, a, a tripper. As Mark Riley called him a one-off, but in the way we're all one-offs. Isn't that the whole thing about the art system? I mean, at the same time, we have so much we share in common, but we are, just look at your thumbprint, we are one-offs, yet share so much in common. That's, that's the whole dangling duality of that thing, you know. I'm very excited about that. Also, another tour with the Italian guys in September, October.
0: Where are you going to go on that tour? Are you playing all over North America? or
1: No, no, it's Europe. Okay. Main, a lot of it's Italy. mikewatt.com, you'll have the dates up in a couple days. But a lot of it's in Italy. And We're talking Sardinia and Sicily, you know, more in the south. But there's going to be a lot in England and uh, Scotland, Ireland, Germany. Uh, I think it's 28 gigs, 28, uh, no, 20. Nine days, 28 weeks. Do you do you like playing overseas? I like playing everywhere. I, you know, I, this country's, you know, I just did a, right, with the meat puppets, and playing every day for a month. I loved it. And getting to go over to Europe, I love it. Uh, getting to go. Yeah, you know, in March, I went to China for the first time. Man, that was a mind blow. There's something about when you physically go and meet people and eat their chow. and You know what I mean? Check out how they live, and uh, walk down the street, and drive around, and every place is interesting like that, uh, including the U.S. Uh, and uh, beyond the borders too. All of them—they're all—it's it's more proof that life's a classroom, and I'm into it.
0: What did you find different about China than you do find about other crowds? Anything?
1: Well, China is Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> No, because, you know, people try to explain to you, but you don't really know until you go there, you know. There's a lot of things going on there. A lot of old, a lot of new, all at once. It's wild. Uh, maybe not as much bow. If you're thinking of Japan, maybe not as much bowing, you know. <laughs> but uh, uh, actually, people are really nice, man. Uh, interesting thing. Uh, and, and then the, the personal experience of you actually going and, and, and being there, uh, I tell you this. Maybe we don't want coal power though, though that that the pollution a little, a little rough, and they know about that. They don't like it. They want to get onto sun and wind power. I mean, 'cause that 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 is a little choking on the physical level. The, the I remember though coming to Cali in the old days as a boy. We had smog alerts where you weren't allowed to play. You know these smog controls. They work. <laughs> if, you put, if you install them, I, I swear to God they work. <laughs> So, I mean, that's just one level. And, and, of course, it wasn't the whole experience and stuff. But uh, uh, I, I can't wait to go there again. Uh, the, 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 they have their own thing going. You know, it's not just about copying. There's a there's the funny thing about Asia that they have to copy everything. That's not true. <laughs> they're, they're, they're very interesting. I just think, uh, you know, history, strange, different parts. Some of us luckier. I'd like to play more Latin America. I'd like to play uh, Africa and India. I mean, there's so much of the world, right? Still, is not giggable yet, but it'll come. I'm I'm very positive about that, and and, and same in this country too. You know, uh, there's gigs in places you wouldn't have believed. There's a biker bar here in Pedro. I would have never guessed there would be pub gigs, and it happened.
0: <laughs> See, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. Now, just real quick, uh, your show. Like, who was your who was your guest today on your show?
1: There's a guy from Wales. His name was Jamie Morrison. Beautiful guy. He is over here on tour. Uh, He's also an artist and a photographer. And uh, he's a cat I I met by doing a gig with. And then his his, his experience is intense. He's uh, in bands with uh, different people back home, but also here in the U.S., in New Jersey, and in Florida. Yeah, a lot. You know, somebody once said it's not where you're from, it's where you're at. And that's getting more and more true. And it's, you know, on, on some levels, it's really fucking happening. I know everybody wants to be safe, and I'm with that. But on the at the same time, time man, uh, it sure is interesting about stuff. It is and connections and collaborations.
0: Yeah, well, that's awesome, man. Well, I want to thank you. I'm glad we hooked up. Now, your website is uh, how'd you get how, how'd you come up with Hoot Page? What was, what's it mean? What's a Hoot Page?
1: You know, you give a hoot. All right, a hoot and a holler. I thought again. I was looking at like fanzines. You know, you're trying to let people know what's going on without a middleman, right? So it's the hoot page. Mike Watt, you know, he gives a hoot about what he's doing.
0: <laughs> and you're gonna you're gonna update the, the the dates in a few weeks, right? So people will know. Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, the new tour that's coming on. Yeah, the, the, those gigs are getting all solid right now. And you yes. Yeah and also I found out uh, there was another guy who owned MikeWatt.com. well I found him and I bought my own name back
0: that sucks <laughs> <I know. laughs> that's like cooper talk my website they someone has cooper com. they I'm like you know what I'll just give it on cooper net. <laughs> they
1: they're not using it they're just sitting on it right i know it's crazy that's you know i could see if they were using it because there are some other mike Watts out there there's an artist and there's a hockey player but the guys who just sit on it, that's pretty bug. <laughs> <laughs> that's like sitting on some old P bass, you know, and not playing it. Right. You know, <laughs> belonged to James Jamerson or something. Well, Mike, man, I want to thank
0: you for coming on. This is great. I'm glad we got to do this. Okay. And uh Stuff that the average person doesn't
1: ask, and I thank you very much for
0: that. Hey, no problem, man. I just, you know, I wish I'd I just moved back to the Philadelphia area when you were playing at TLA, and I couldn't make it. I looked on your website, and me and my girlfriend just moved back in the beginning of May, and I was like, shit, I want to get over there, but we're, we were staying with her mom, all this, you know, until the moving truck gets here, so I couldn't make it, so... Next time you're in the Philadelphia area, I'm coming out Yeah, I, I'll come back probably next year.
1: Don't worry. Right,
0: great. Well, so your website is HootPage.com. What's your Twitter?
1: Well, it's also, like I told you, I bought my name, so there's a pointer there. You could also go to, right?
0: MikeWatt.com.
1: Right. And then, uh, I think it, is this, uh. I think that's shitter. All right, cool.
0: Is that right? Uh, I, don't, I don't. It's not in front. Of me. It's all right. I, they can look it it's up here. anyway. Look, look, no,
1: look on your uh, look on your chat board. Okay. The chat board didn't come up. It's weird. No, it's a little window. If you if you put your cursor over your face, round you'll see a little window in the upper right hand corner with a little word bubble. Click on that word bubble.
0: I'm not getting it. My my, my computer must be weird.
1: Well, if you look in window on.
0: I don't have it, but I'll, I'll figure it out.
1: If you look under your window.
0: I have my window. My, my face is no longer there. Oh, here it is. All right, hold on. There we go. It's uh, it's uh, it's Watt from Pedro. You're, you're Watt from Pedro. There it is. I found it. I didn't even know what that thing was.
1: <laughs> okay, and then you could go to the conversation, right? Yeah, I see it. And then you'll see these links that I just flowed you. You can click on those links and see if they work.
0: Mikewatt.com. We're doing that right now. And it comes it's the same as the hoop page. So you got mikewatt.com, you got hoop page. It's called that's called a
1: pointer in the so, internet world. Alright,
0: well and we got Watt from Pedro. So I yeah. want
1: to thank you for coming on.
0: Good luck with does the tour. Twitter?
1: Does the Twitter one work?
0: Yeah, it goes. Okay. So anyway. And then I
1: think yeah, yeah. And there's other shit there, too. But if you go to MikeWatt.com, that's, got, that's me personally. I've done it since 96. I've had that a website for 21
0: years. Cool. Great, man. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, people, check out Mike. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 615 episodes up there. Email me, oh. Cooper, at coopertalk.net, and follow me on keep Twitter. On, keep
1: on keeping on, Steve. Thanks, Mike. And you have a great day, okay?
0: Okay. Thanks, Thanks. a lot, man. All right.
1: Take a look.